Hello, and welcome to the All Bets Are Off podcast, a gambling addiction recovery podcast brought to you by those with lived experience. If you're here and having difficulties with gambling, please reach out. There are plenty of people on your side. There's a comprehensive list of support services over on our website, www.allbetteroff.co.uk. It's now time to crack on with the pod. Hi everyone, it's Chris here and welcome to this week's instalment of the All Bets Are Off podcast. Ryan and Kish are taking it nice and easy today, having a well-deserved break. So I'm joined by our Angela the North, Tracy. It's great to have you back on in the co-hosting seat, mate. How have you been keeping since the last time our listeners heard from you? I have been really good, really busy with work, enjoying the lovely sunny weather, not, and the lovely rainy weather, and... Not been doing a lot in this lovely lockdown, to be fair. Work, home, eating, that's about it. Plenty of eating, so I've heard, Trace, plenty of eating. (laughs) Today we have two guests. Later we will be chatting with Jed Colley-Priest, who has spent 13 years working in the advertising industry, including a five-year stint as the head of sponsorship at TalkSport. But before that, we are lucky to be joined by Rohan Banerjee. Rohan is a journalist who I first met when contributing to his New Statesman article titled A Bookie in Your Pocket, How Tech Changed the Dynamics of Sports Betting. Hiya, Rohan. It's great to have you with us today. Uh, Yeah, uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Can you tell our listeners, Rohan, a little bit about who you are and why the keen interest in writing about gambling when, as a journalist, there are so many other subjects you could write about? Well, so as as Chris mentioned, I work for the New Statesman on their Spotlight section, which is uh, a section specifically about policy. And gambling is a particular interest of mine, as is mental health. And I think those two subjects have got quite a big overlap. So I'm very passionate about uh, mental health advocacy and I'm also very passionate about sport um, which gambling has uh, an interesting relationship with to say the least. The article that, uh, that Chris contributed to uh, which I'm very grateful for the idea for that came from came from well not only my own experiences of the gambling industry uh, I myself would call myself a recreational gambler but I'm also acutely aware of how poorly the industry is regulated, um, but also noticing in lockdown where more people have been, I think, susceptible to online gambling because they're bored and locked at home. So I thought it was a particularly pertinent issue that needed to be reported. Absolutely, Rohan. And it was great to be part of that piece, actually. You know, it was really, really interesting. Very, very well written. As I mentioned, when we met, you were writing the New Statesman article that you've just mentioned. Um, so really, that's as good a place to start as any. For our listeners who might not be aware of the article, do you want to give a quick insight in a little more depth than you just have as to why you feel compelled to write about why gambling apps and in-play markets need tighter regulation? Um, yeah, of course. Uh, so I think I think particularly during the pandemic where uh, the continuation of elite sports in general has, uh, you know, raises a number of questions as well as to whether or not it should have gone ahead. But the point is that it did. And a lot of sport has been televised. Um, There are no fans in the ground, but there are plenty of people still kind of latching on uh, to watch it from home. What else is there to do? So I guess it's been a welcome respite in that in that regard. I do think that I mean, there has been plenty of research with the which the article quotes um, about a rise in people's online gambling activity out of boredom. Um, I think that that was a that was a risk that I was aware of um, and wanted to kind of shine the spotlight on it. I also think that, you know, my own relationship with gambling as a sports fan, I have always seen the, um, you know, the the gamblification of sport. It's been normalized for as long as I've been alive. Oh, sorry, for as long as I've been (laughs) for as long as I've been watching sport, really, there seems to have been this symbiotic relationship with gambling and sport. Now, it was only really kind of as I got older that I realised exactly how damaging that symbiotic relationship is. Um, it's almost become one of mutual dependency. And I wanted to explore that. The focus on in-play markets, I think, is particularly important because that is a product that did not exist a few years ago. That is something that technology has enabled. Um, so in the past, you know, you might get somebody place a football accumulator at the weekend. They, you know, they put it on at two o'clock, at three o'clock it's kick off, and at five o'clock they come back and they, they've either won or lost. What technology has done is it's created a plethora of new products in the gambling industry that just did not exist 10 years ago. Now, on the one hand, you could argue that it's, uh, 
you know, that innovation has created a better product, a more advanced product. And, you know, they're from a from a consumer perspective, it's exciting. But the reality of that innovation is that it brings with it new risks associated with that technology. And I, I wanted to shine the spotlight on it. I think that's a really good point you make about the, the fact that technology is advanced and with the advancement has come this risk because obviously, as as we all probably know, gambling with mental health as you say you're interested in has massively increased within this this industry so with the increase of the markets and available markets now for people to put on it's just massively increased people's um mental health and i think it would be great for us to think about the relationship between gambling and the press in some detail now Firstly, I'd like to ask whether the nefarious reality of the gambling industry is underreported. I do think it's underreported. And again, that was one of the motivations for wanting to write something about it. And I think it's underreported for myriad reasons. One of them being the gambling industry has an impressive PR lobby uh, uh, that that aims to schmooze journalists and uh, use a lot of misdirection and smoke and mirrors to kind of distract from the nefarious realities of the gambling industry. I think another reason is because uh, gambling, there's a there's a sociological element in that the kind of people who are most susceptible to problem gambling, I mean, I, I hasten to clarify that everyone is at risk of problem gambling if it's not, you know, if they, if they don't, if they don't kind of treat the industry with the respect and responsibility that they need to. But I do think that you're probably more prone to it on a lower income because you've got more to lose. You know, you, you, you're more at risk. And I do think that there is a level of complacency among, well, if you consider journalism to be, I don't know, a, a lar- dominated by largely middle class people who are writing there, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of um, diversity and insight into some of the issues that might affect lower income brackets. So I do think that there's I do think there's a lack of insight for that reason. As for the relationship with the press uh, in general, as I said, it, uh, gambling has a very impressive PR lobby. Um, I think it's got a particularly pronounced relationship with the sports with sports journalism because sports journalism is innately gamblified by the nature of sport being gamblified. I think one of the one of the things that I've kind of always been aware of is you know when you read articles about football managers for example like uh tracy you're a you're a fellow newcastle united sufferer so at the moment you've had to endure steve bruce but you know when we read articles about steve bruce's supposed successor um the kind of phraseology that gets thrown around is stuff like the bookie's favorite to uh you know that kind of language has been normalized so i do i think that i think that journalism sports journalism in particular and gambling are interlinked and i think that that relationship needs to be navigated a lot more responsibly than it currently is and that requires a level of effort on both journalists who have a responsibility to report it better and you be careful with their language but also gambling industry needs to be you know the gambling industry needs to be aware of what it's doing and it needs to not take liberties when it comes to trying to get journalists on side by schmoozing them with freebies and so on some very 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 interesting points there actually and uh by the time this goes out um steve bruce might no longer be in charge of newcastle united anyway to be honest <laughs> but yeah i mean we were having a chat off air actually and it seems to me that bookmakers offer perks and promotions to keep the press on side. It seems like you've just suggested that a little in your answer as well. Um, am I cynical in thinking these practices contribute to the press, not necessarily reporting what they should? You know, this would lead to a lack of awareness for the public of what really goes on with regards to gambling harm, for example. Do you think this is something that needs looking at or am I way off the mark with this? Uh, I don't think you're. I don't think you're being cynical at all, Chris. Um, you know, I think so. Uh, again, bit of background filler on myself. Prior to working at the New Statesman, um, I worked on the sports desk at both the Daily Mail and the Daily Mirror. And um, you know, in that time, it was quite normal for bookmakers uh, to offer the to offer the sports desks um, freebies and perks. I don't think it was necessarily with you know the out the overt intention of preventing them from reporting on it because that's not that's not usually within the remit of a sports desk but what i do think it i what i do think it helped to do 
whether indirectly or directly, is just kind of think, oh, well, you know, it's just part of sport and normalise that idea. It's part of sport. It's just a bit of fun. I don't want to name individual bookmakers because I don't know what the implications of me doing so are. But I will say that several high profile bookmakers in my time at the Mail did pay for several journalists to attend events and promotional stuff. I also have a friend who worked with another high profile UK bookmaker who uh, they arranged like a press party during the 2018 World Cup, where basically they invited journalists, not just from sports desks, but across desks to kind of come and have beers and pizza, watch the football. Jack Wilshire was drafted in as a special guest, as was uh, Kate Abdo from Sky Sports, Natalie Sawyer, I think as well. And it was just, you know, this idea that the gambling company in question was more of a kind of feel-good facilitator rather than, you know, the reality of what it is, which is a, a very dangerous product, which while I do not, you know, I do not support the the banning of gambling, I just think that gambling needs to be, it just needs to be honest about the risks attached to it. I think you've made a good point there. And I think, you know, we've spoke about it so many times before on the podcast about how I think all four of us who do the podcast are not against gambling what we're against is the exploitation and the risks that are associated with gambling and I think if those are looked at hopefully in the near future it would stop people losing money losing their lives losing the homes and I think that's what you working in journalism hopefully in the near future you'll be able to to almost be guided into what you can write and what you can't write and like you said before you know making sure that you're using the correct terminology and things so not refer oh the bookmaker's favorite because it's even things like in day-to-day life you'll have a conversation with someone and they'll go do you want to bet or are you sure about that and it's it's almost it's absolutely been normalized it's just the risks haven't been normalized and I think the risks have got greater with technology getting worse something else I wanted to discuss today is content masked as journalism this is used on a lot of bookies sites to entice readers and potential gamblers the content is skewed towards gambling related topics can you tell us a little bit about how this works um yeah so I think there are a number of bookies which have basically articles that are related to the markets that they're peddling um so that might be you know that might be a short spiel about you know the next manager odds and so on and i don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with uh you know if a manager's on the brink of a sack you know doing a piece that lists the runners and riders but the way that it's done on bookies is very different to the way that it's done in newspapers and magazines at least i think i also think that uh, quite a, a reality of journalism and particularly sports journalism is very competitive and there's only a finite amount of publications that you can work for right so I saw recently there was um, an editor's role advertised for Sporting Life which is the website attached to Skybet and you know it was it was packaged as a journalism role sports editor of Sporting Life and I thought oh people are going to apply for that because you know sports journalism there's only so many jobs you can have they're going to go for that but the thing is the remit of that sports journalism job is not necessarily to report on the most newsworthy aspects of sport it is to report with a direction that is specifically towards gambling so you're looking for you know all of your stories all of your stories are nosed on the implications of that story for markets and betting um, as opposed to you know what really needs to be said you know football 365 is attached to bet 365 and you know I I mean what one thing one thing that's been really troubling actually is I've noticed uh, I mean you know the relationship between Premier League clubs and gambling is 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 uh, you know self-evident lots of them are sponsored and have official bookmakers and so on but I've noticed even that um, Premier like Arsenal the other the other week uh, ahead of their FA Cup game they actually did a tweet from the Arsenal Twitter account saying uh you know you can place a bet on or you, there's a there's a betting offer when clubs own social media accounts are peddling this kind of thing i think we're into really murky territory there likewise you know when you've got national newspapers and magazines peddling 
uh, peddling odds and talking, as I said, about the bookie's favourite and so on, and using that kind of loaded language, I think I think is something to really be aware of and kind of take control of before it's too late. I think that's a really good point you made because I had a rant on the weekend to Chris actually about that tweet because I was so mad that it had gone out to so many youngsters because obviously Twitter is a platform for... There'll be young girls and boys on that from 11, 12, 13 years of age. And actually, after the match, I was looking and and a lot of people were quite rude and, you know, saying, oh, well, if you want to stop betting, stop betting. You don't have to take Arsenal's advice. But the point is, is that these children are looking up to these massive football clubs and they, they want Arsenal on the wall. Why? I don't know why they would want Arsenal on the wall, but... But they absolutely admire these football clubs. So they have normalised the fact, oh, do an in-play bet. And actually, the, the bet that they'd advertised didn't come through. So how many of their fans have put this bet on and it didn't even come through? And I just think that that responsibility on Arsenal... I mean, to be fair, the tweets were a bit of a mixed bag that day. But actually, I think it absolutely needs policing more because... It's it's known, isn't it? You shouldn't be gambling unless you're 18 or over on most gambling sites. Yet though that tweet has gone out to children. And that's what I was against at the weekend. I was fuming, to be fair. But I just think they massively need to take ownership of what, what they've done. Whether they will or not, I don't know, because there's no regulations around it. But me and Chris did have a... Well, I say me and Chris had a whinge about it. I had a whinge and Chris listened to it. Totally bit me ear off absolutely chewed my ear off. <laughs> but what I would say is, you know, like Gary Lineker got behind that and I think Dan Walker did as well. Um, so, you know, absolutely fantastic. There were some high profile people out there at the moment who are seeing these issues and they're supporting, I think, the right message now, which is great. And also, what we were just saying there, actually, there are only eight clubs in the Premier League and the Skybet Championships who don't have an official gambling sponsor or partner. That's only eight out of two leagues. And, that's quite incredible, I think. Um, and back on some of the things you were just saying there, actually, around sports journalism, I remember being at school and various friends wanted to be journalists, but they all wanted to be a sports journalist, all of them. And I know some of them are journalists now and don't work in sport, but as a, as a boy of 15, 16, wanting to write, that was what my friends wanted to do. Gambling wasn't so normalised back then. Now that it's normalised, I can imagine people coming through school and then applying for jobs like the ones you were just talking about, the ones which you know might be on a gambling website or something or um, sport in life, I think you mentioned there, and thinking this is fine. Actually, I don't mind giving that message because I've grown up with this normalisation around gambling. So there doesn't seem to be any issue with me doing it. You know, why would they think that when they've grown up in such a gambling normalised age? What I'd like to ask now, though, is we know that gambling causes harm. So just before we wrap up the first half of the show, I wanted to ask whether you think that the press has a responsibility to highlight the dangers of the gambling industry. Assuming so, how do you think they are doing and what do you think they need to do better in the future? Uh, absolutely, is, is, the, is the short answer. Uh, in a bit more detail, um, I, think, uh, I think that journalism in general, the, the purpose of journalism is to hold power to account and to uh, spread important information that the public needs to read, right? So I think journalism in general, absolutely should do more digging and should be more, you know, should hold the gambling industry to a higher standard of account. I, I think that's true of the press in general. And, you know, more more investigative journalists uh, should consider gambling as a point of interest, I think. Uh, as for sports journalism itself, I think sports journalism needs to be very, it needs to have an honest reflection on its relationship with the gambling industry. Um, as much as, as a journalist, I do love a PR freebie and uh, I do love a free beer when I can go to an event or something, I do also think that sports desks need to be mindful of that relationship that they're that they're having you know i don't think there's anything wrong in going to an event but i do think there's something wrong in sports desks putting bookies odds booking bookies odds within their journalism and you know mentioning you know using using that loaded language uh when i was at the mail i do recall uh, a manager, a new, a new manager appointment story in which we, you know, we wrote the article as we would normally, and then included the latest odds 
on the people that were in the, in the frame to uh, replace. Uh, we had these things called green boxes. So if you go on the Mail Online's website, you'll have an, a normal article and you'll have a green text box that has a kind of breakout bit of information. I personally think it's wrong to include that in journalism because you know you're not you're not a bookmaker you're a newspaper so act like it so i would like to see less of that for a start how do i think they're doing at the moment uh well you know from the example i've just used uh and i, I hasten to add the mail isn't unique in this i've seen i've seen those kind of text boxes on various national publications i've just mentioned one that i used to work for you know i, I don't want to see that when i'm reading about you know sports journalism um i i don't i don't want to see i don't want to see that infringement of the gambling industry i think that when it comes to i, I don't think you can tell Football 365 or Sporting Life to stop publishing articles. I don't think that's a realistic course of action. But I do think that people need to have their eyes open a bit when they're reading those sites and consider the context of where they are placed. I think that I think that as an industry, we have to be honest. Uh, sports journalism as an industry has to be honest about its relationship with gambling and and do better and make and and you know just the point on technology as well actually um, and going back to this Arsenal thing. In-play betting is such a dangerous and slippery slope, um, and it's been enabled by technology, and that's what my piece kind of tried to put across. Um, I don't think, I mean, they're not they're not publications as such, but I don't think it's healthy or healthy or wise for football clubs to peddle those kind of things as matches are happening. And as Tracy mentioned, the bet that was peddled in the Arsenal game didn't actually come off. Now, I, I, I would be curious how many people placed that bet based on the tweet they saw. So when we talk about the media's relationship with gambling, I think within that, you should also include social media because social media has become a form of journalism in and of itself. So how do I think they're doing? Not good enough. Uh, what do I think needs to change? I think they just have to be more mindful about what they're putting out. And I certainly don't want to see, you know, next manager odds included as as par for the course in sports journalism. Oh, thanks for that, Rohan. You've done absolutely amazing today. Um, this brings us to the end of part one. Please stick around and join us for part two just after this quick break. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. The All Bets Are Off podcast is brought to you in association with Gamban and they've teamed up with Gamcare and Gamstop to formulate TalkBan Stop. The TalkBan Stop campaign offers a trio of free tools to prevent gambling harm with support via Gamcare's national gambling helpline, free Gamban blocking software and Gamstop self-exclusion. Head to www.talkbanstop.com for more information. TalkBan Stop is only available in the UK, but to block your devices from accessing gambling sites and apps, you can get Gamban at gamban.com or on the App Store or Play Store, wherever you are in the world. Now though, it's time to get back into the pod. Welcome back to part two of this week's episode. Me and Tracy have now been joined by Jed Colleypriest. Jed has spent 13 years in the advertising industry, including a five-year stint at TalkSport, where he was head of sponsorship. During his time in the industry, he worked with most bookmakers from the largest names to the smaller companies. In 2018, he decided to turn his back on the bookies and start his own business, Underdog Sports Marketing, with a view to creating more sustainable sponsorship for clubs and brands. Part of his remit is helping clubs to prepare for a future without sponsorship money from bookies. I must admit, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. So let's jump in. Hi, Jed. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Great to uh, yeah, great to be with you, or as close to with you as you can be in these strange times. Uh, exactly. Yeah, we've we've never got any closer than this, and uh, we've been doing this since last April. So uh, strange times indeed. But you know, I've just given you a brief intro there, uh, Jed. But can you tell us a bit more about yourself, maybe in a bit more detail? maybe an overview of your time at TalkSport and then the reasons why you decided to start up underdog sport marketing. Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, that really good, enjoyable five years at TalkSport. And I worked in the commercial team, ended up heading up the sponsorship department. So what that means is it was my job to go out and get sponsors for the shows. And what we were very good at there was kind of going beyond just saying, this show is sponsored by Ford or the Lions Tour is sponsored by Land Rover. We worked really closely with the show producers to find ways that presenters could talk credibly about the brand. So when we worked with Land Rover, the presenters travelled around Australia in the car. So they loved it because they got to travel around in a great car. It sounded better for the listener and the client loved it because it was a really good endorsement. So 
when it came to setting up Underdog, I wanted to take some of that ethos and kind of introduce a bit of that creativity to the, uh, I guess, to sports clubs and to, to leagues who are still doing a lot of old school sponsorships. So often placing a logo, more often than not a betting one on a uh, on a football jersey or on a, a jersey of some kind. And yeah, as you say, in the, in the previous 10 years, I've worked with a lot of bookies. And by the end of that time, I've grown much more sceptical and I guess a lot more aware about the relationship between gambling advertising and yeah and the and the people on the on the the actual receiving end of it so i felt that the industry was over reliant on gambling clients and it needed to put that record straight so as you said there in the introduction made the choice not to work with not to work with bookmakers again i think that's a really good choice and i think it's amazing that what you're trying to do with your business as well I think um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Jed, is you've spent a lot of time in the industry and have a wealth of knowledge, having worked with bookies for many years. I wondered if you could walk us through the history of bookmakers in sports sponsorship. Yeah, I think that obviously sports like horse racing and you know greyhound racing have intrinsically been very, very closely linked to bookmaking because of, because of the way the sports are operated and betting has always been an integral part of that. I think the the way it really exploded is when you look at the relationship with, particularly in this country, you look at the relationship between bookies and football. And I think you can kind of put that down into two phases. One is the adoption of online media. So I think the the first uh, Premier League club to to have a bookmaking sponsor was Fulham uh, at the, the kind of the, the turn of the century around two thousand ish. I think uh, that deal was done, and that was with Betfair. You know, which is very much an online, uh, an online bookmaker, and you know that was still in the in the age where bricks and mortar bookmakers were were still a very very prominent thing. So that was a that was a big spike. Then obviously you see that explode even further ten years later when you have the widespread adoption of smartphones. So it's not just that you can go online and have an online account; you can bet from your phone itself. So that's where it became even more entrenched. And in between those two points, you have a relaxation in advertising laws in two thousand and seven. Now, what that meant was bookies could play money into televised sports, football very much being at the forefront of that. And, you know, again, if you've if you've watched a, a Premier League game in the last 10 years, you'll be familiar with, um, you know, with how many adverts have been shown during that time. And the long and the short of it is that, that it worked for bookmakers. That's why you have more bookies than you could ever need and virtually every football club uh, imaginable working with them. You know, not, not everyone, it has to be said, but... You know, it, it's uh, it's very well documented the amount of the amount of football clubs who do have bookmaking partners, whether they're the the lead sponsor on their shirt or they're in some way affiliated with the with the club. And I guess to bring things up to date, in recent years we've seen a degree of self regulation, which again I know you guys have, have spoken about in the past, and so that has manifested itself in ways such as the the whistle to whistle ban that um, or ban's probably the wrong word the whistle to whistle veto of uh, of bookmakers during live premier league games so again on on sky and bt you won't see them actually during the, the half time break so that was a big step that um, that took place a couple of years ago and that as i say it wasn't a ban that was something that was that was done by way of self regulation by the broadcasters now again, on the on the face of it, that seems like a massive step forward because you don't have um, yeah you don't have half time then uh, filled with uh, with advertising uh, with advertising for bookmakers. But at the same time, there is still a lot of you know if you think that Ford Super Sunday or you know Renault Super Sunday as it is now is two and a half three hours long the programming. There's a hell of a lot of uh, advertising spaces before and after the game, but particularly before it then means you can you can inflate inflate the prices of it. So it's not a solely that exercise from the from the broadcasters was not solely a an altruistic one, but yeah, that kind of brings us up to speed until you get to to this year where you've got um, a review into the um, into the gambling regulation which the government has, has has undertaken now, which I know again you you guys will be covering very very closely. Yeah, absolutely, it is something that we're really interested in. I think you've hit the nail on the head with the fact that media and so social media and your phones and everything it's just so prominent in today's society and I, I don't think the current gambling act actually covers that so I think that's one of the main things the gambling act's absolutely going to have to take into consideration that 
people can be at work and just on the phone so and the problem is is when we've talked about it a long time on the podcast as well when people are on the phones people don't tend to know what you're doing because it's your private phone isn't it so you could just say I mean I know through my, my husband's an ex-gambler and I would say to him, oh, what are you doing on your phone? And he'd say, oh, just texting someone or messaging someone or emailing someone, doing some work. And it's just so hidden. And I think, like you say, I mean, the good thing with the, the whistle-to-whistle veto almost is that there's there's not the advertising at half time, but then you go on your phone and it's there anyway. So it, it's almost removed it from one platform and you've still got it on another platform. And... Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you as well was over what time, over time, sorry, what changes have you seen in regards to, to the tone of gambling? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I think that um, with the more success, you know, the more financial success that the bookmakers saw from plowing money into advertising, you know, the, the sheer volume uh, of adverts that you'd see naturally went up but at the same time i think you're right the tone is a really really important thing and i think actually that's been that's been since 2007 that has been an absolutely crucial part of how things have changed and it's that normalization of gambling that i think is the biggest effect you've seen off the back of it so often you know you'll see that you know the portrayal of lads having a good time enjoying a flutter while watching the football and i think there's a lot of that that a lot of that that, that kind of many of us can relate to. And I think by the time I came to working with bookmaker clients, I'd been exposed to a lot of these advertising, you know, and so that was kind of my way of thinking. I thought, well, I'm like these guys, I enjoy an occasional punt. But then when you see the where the bulk of the profit comes from, you have to kind of reconsider that view. And I think, you know, probably naively on my part, it took me a long time to get to that, to get to that position. And and that's why advertising is so powerful, because it can make a behavior seem very, very normal, you know, and that could be uh, you know, you think back to the the heady days of 2007, and everyone started pouring cider over ice. Right, that was that was the thing for you know when Magnus came out, they they came out with this ad campaign, essentially a gimmick. You know, there was no real reason to pour the cider on ice other than the fact it didn't taste very nice. And it, you know, it saw widespread adoption because they're able to to instill that behavioural change. Now, you know, you could probably argue that it's a little bit better if you've got ice on your side because at least it's watering it down a bit. But when it comes to when it comes to gambling, it's that normalisation that's happened over a period of you know what we're talking now, fourteen years, and that's a very very long long period of time. And and the tone is important; it's definitely important because the exposure of bookmaking logos is one thing, but the ad, coupled with the advertising that tells you essentially tells you it's normal behaviour is so so different to the relationship we would have had with gambling beforehand, which was you know you had to go into a physical building and. You know, I think there's there was probably a stigma attached to to that in a certain to a certain degree. You know that the high street bookies were kind of you know dark, dingy places with you know just kind of smoke filled rooms. Whereas the normalisation of it meant that you weren't just appealing to to a small sector of people anymore. That you were appealing to virtually all football fans and all sports fans. And so yeah, you, you're absolutely right. The tone of it has been, you know, I think it's been consistent up until maybe about a year ago, when you've all of a sudden seen a huge ramping up in the please gamble responsibly stakes. And that is, you know, looking at it with sceptical, um, with, you know, a sceptical lens on, it's almost like it's a, you know, the naughty kid at class going, oh, the teacher's, the teacher's coming back, the teacher's coming back, everyone look busy. You know, the, it's when the supply teacher's in and they've, they've, got, they've gone off and you're all messing about. It's like, oh, quick, 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 they're coming back. Let everyone, everyone start behaving themselves. You know, it, it does it does feel a bit like that because the danger is, is if you let that please gamble responsibly uh, messaging continue and you allow things like football betting sponsorships to continue, even with that messaging on, the presence is there. You know, the presence is there and you've still got 14 years of, uh, of adverts telling you that this is fine, it's completely normal and, and without really laying out the dangers up until recent times. The way you explained that was a uh, fantastic there, Jed. Actually, about the kind of the the naughty kid in school and uh, the supply teacher and such. I, I really get that. That makes a lot of sense. And and you know the way you're talking about pouring magnets on ice and how gimmicky that was. And you know, as an alcoholic myself as well, you know, if, to me that made no sense. I was like, what are they doing this for? But then all my friends were pouring cider on ice. So it just shows how the advertising works and and why they do it. But that little bit of conversation there actually brings me nicely 
onto kind of what I wanted to ask you now. And what I want to ask you about is the comparison with alcohol and tobacco. Gambling products are harmful, just as alcohol and tobacco are. The alcohol and tobacco industry aren't able to encourage constant use of their products during a football match, though. Slogans such as, it means more when there's money on it, just wouldn't be allowed. What are your thoughts on this topic? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Chris. I think this, this to me, is the, is the crux of the whole issue about whether or not gambling advertising should be allowed. And in tobacco and alcohol, you have the perfect case studies to compare it to. Both are addictive, as you said. Both have a huge history of advertising. Both have long historic relationships with sport and sport sponsorship. All of these things are shared with gambling. Now, tobacco advertising is completely banned whilst alcohol is heavily regulated. Now, a big part of that to me is, in my opinion, down to what we were just discussing before, and that's the tone of the adverts. You know, if you think back to, you know, for, for many, many years, we've had Ray Winston's dismembered head shouting at you to bet in play now. And the alcohol equivalent of that would be go and get a pint in now. Go on, get another one, get another one, you know, or, you know, get some shots in. And you just, you can't imagine that because it has been regulated over a number of years, not just in terms of where and when you're allowed to advertise, but the tone and how you're allowed to do it. You will never see in an advertising campaign for a for an alcohol client, you will never see anyone who looks under the age of 25. Now, and again, some of these things do apply to gambling, but you will never see anything that says, yeah, go and have, you know, you go and have seven pints and, and you'll be able to go and chat up the most attractive girl in the bar. Right. You, you just simply you're not allowed to do those things because it's so strictly regulated. And I think that, you know, when you compare that to what we've seen with with gambling over the years, then it's a very, very stark contrast. You know, you look at look at alcohol advertising now. Most of the time they're telling you to not to drink and to buy um, and to buy their zero beers. You know, and, and again, right, that's not that's not an altruistic thing solely. It's because there's a market there. There's a lot of people now who are much more health conscious and are buying zero percent beers. But what's the betting equivalent of that? You know, what would that what would that be? There isn't one. It's um, it's I, I just think that that is the crux of the issue. Can you have a form of gambling advertising that is so that is so strictly regulated that it can be that it can be truly responsible rather than just putting a tag on the end that says, please gamble responsibly. And for me, I don't think you're ever going to get to that position. And that's where it falls into the tobacco bracket rather than into the uh, into the alcohol bracket. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you. And I think, you know, I've spoke about our work in healthcare, and I think people don't actually take it serious that it is becoming a health issue. And, you know, people are becoming depressed over it. They're becoming ill through it they're committing suicide over it and I think until people take it seriously and I think inevitably I think with with tobacco it got to the point where the amount of money the government were making was outweighed by the amount they were spending on healthcare trying to to get people better from respiratory problems that were caused by tobacco and I think at the minute gambling's not at that point where people are going into hospital or getting admitted into rehab because people end up either taking their own life or it's such a taboo subject that they carry on gambling to the point where they end up most likely in prison. And I think it's such a difficult subject to talk about. I know with my husband, he was three years he was hiding it from me. And I think it's such a difficult subject to have because people almost laugh about it and say, how did you not know your husband was gambling? How did, how did you not know he was doing it? Or how did how did he like get into, how did he become an addict? It's almost like such a, a shock to people that have not been involved in it. Yeah, really quickly before your next question, Trace, something that came up there, you were talking about the um, cost to healthcare. Now I've got no stats, no reason other than personal opinion to think this, but with regards to tobacco, yeah, there's loads of money ploughed in because of that. But people who are smoking will die. And actually, people who are dying, you know, the healthcare system no longer needs to pay for them. With gambling, it might be that actually there is a much longer harm from gambling where less and less people maybe die from gambling. So it could be that the cost on the healthcare sector could be much greater. Um, I think that would be a really interesting to really interesting thing to kind of research um, and, and check that out but for me I think that's a real possibility yeah absolutely and I think I think as well going back to um 
I think there's a massive stigma with gambling. So you tend to find that, like, raising a group of lads who are on a football group, they'll talk about football, they're all big football fans, and there's a few of them on it that'll just talk about, oh, I've won X amount of money. Bearing in mind the noise he's had issues with gambling. And I think it's this whole... I said to Ray, they always tell you when they win. They never tell you when they lose. And it's almost this like big I am, isn't it? Oh, I've won this amount of money. They never actually tell you when they've lost that money. And I think this, I think gambling, we've talked about it so many times before. It's got such a big stigma, hasn't it, with it? That it's all, and especially with young lads as well. I think it, it's only going to get worse for the generation below us, you know, Go, who are in school now, who are in college now, it's going to get worse because it's so normal. There was one thing I wanted to ask you, and going back to the relationship between many sports and bookmakers, like boxing, snooker, and obviously football spring to mind, how entwined are these sports with bookmakers and how do bookmakers spend compared to that of other advertisers? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that if you start with if you start with football because it's the yeah, because it's the most uh, the most dominant and the most prominent sport. I think you what you've really got is you've got the top six of the Premier League, and the rest of the and the rest of the of the football league uh, alongside that. So you know, if you are a top six club, you know you're a, you're a Tottenham Hotspur, Arsenal, Man City, Man United, right? You you can attract the the biggest name uh, clients to become a sponsor for you. But likewise, you're such a big you're such a big brand and you have so much revenue coming through, well, not ticket sales at the moment, but normally, and through broadcast that actually, yes, gambling is entwined because it's there, but it's kind of the cherry on the cake. And I think that, you know, realistically, there's not there's not going to be that big a financial impact on those kind of teams. Now, you step away from that, and again, you will look at all the other, all the other shirt sponsors in the Premier League, the vast majority of them are gambling. But again, a Premier League club gets so much money through broadcast revenue that you would be able to, to adapt given that there's enough time should a should a blanket ban come in. Now, when you go into the when you go into the to the EFL, when you go into the Football League, it is a very, very different story. And your commercial revenue, you're very, very much dependent on a on a sponsor and or a number of sponsors. And this is where it gets really, really messy. And again, there's a lot. There's a lot of quotes out there at the moment about the importance of of the bookmaking sector when it comes to when it comes to sponsorship. But it's my opinion that you can't take that you can't take that easy way out because if you don't use this opportunity to uh, to rid the sport of of that relationship with gambling, then I don't know that you're you're going to be able to do it going forward. As I, you know, as I said, you know, if you look at if you look at F1 for example. F1 had exactly the same thing with tobacco, right? You know, we'll all, again, we'll all remember, you know, kind of when Nigel Mansell and Damon Hill were winning world titles, they were doing so with, you know, with um, with Rothmans and things like that, slapped down the side of the car. Now, again, when that when that ban came in and well, that legislation was brought in in 1997 that, uh, that, uh, that banned tobacco sponsorships, there was an easy way out that was that was offered to F1. So you will see big big money from tobacco firms is still present within Formula One, whether it's through hospitality. So you won't you won't necessarily you know you won't have the the car splashed with Marlboro Light anymore. But there will be you know there's this thing called Pro, uh, Project Winnow, which um, was uh, the Ferrari you know was was going to be emblazoned on a on a Ferrari uh, a couple of seasons back. Now that money came from Philip Morris, which is the the owner of Marlboro, and the idea was basically about, you know, was basically about smoke-free products. Now, again, it just allows when when you see the amount of money that um, the tobacco firms make from tobacco products rather than the, you know, rather than vaping products and other things, it just allows them a presence in the sport. And I think you've got that real danger that if you allow gambling to stick around in some way, shape, or form, that that's what you're going to end up with. That they're still able to lurk around in them. Um, you know, in the in the background, and it's going to have a very very damaging effect. But no one wants to see football clubs go out of business. You know, particularly at that end of the, uh, you know, you, you know, you ask you ask someone about what's been going on at, at Macclesfield Town or somewhere like that, and they've lost their they've lost their club. You know, and that's it's a big part of that. You know, it's a big part of the town, and and no one wants to see that happen. Which is why there needs to be you know there needs to be a plan for ridding um, for ridding the sport of, of bookmakers. So that's that's kind of the football scenario. Yes, again, boxing. I think mainly because the 
the audience of boxing is quite similar to that of football. So again, you know, you've got very male, you know, young male dominated uh, sport. So naturally, it's it's attracted um, a lot of bookmaking uh, sponsorship because you you know you're kind of going after that same audience again. Does boxing need it uh, quite as much as as some of those football league clubs? You know, again, you look at the big end of the spectrum. If uh, you know, if William Hill aren't sponsoring Anthony Joshua with someone else, yes, he's got stacks and stacks of uh, sponsors out there. The rest, you know, the other uh, the other boxers and the other and the other organisations, it's perhaps a slightly different story. And then, yeah, snooker snooker would be in would be in a lot of trouble. Essentially, snooker had that same relationship with tobacco that uh, the F1 had and it plugged it with it plugged it with gambling brands. Yeah, no, absolutely. When you talk about the snooker, it's one that I do think about quite a lot, actually. Quite like watching the snooker. I used to watch it if my granddad is a kid, you know, on his black and white telly, mind you. I mean, that was never never the easiest watch. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are definitely some challenges, definitely challenges, but, you know, gambling harms, and that's, you know, for my mind, that's why we need a, a full blanket ban, what you've been talking about, the relationship, where it's more like, tobacco than alcohol i totally agree with that we don't yet know what the outcome of the gambling review will be with regards to sponsorship and advertising but off the back of tracy's previous question i'm interested to know what plans if any are being put in place by sporting bodies and clubs for them to be ready should there be big changes on the horizon whether this be the complete ban that we've been talking about or something else yeah that's a really interesting one and it, you know, it will vary from sport to sport and club to club. Really, I think you know some some people are, are just praying that that uh, that they're able to carry on taking the money. Others are thinking a lot more, you know, a, a lot more savvy about it. You know, I spoke to a championship football club uh, a couple of weeks ago who'd made the decision to to turn their back on um, on bookmaking sponsorship and had created a model. This year, they're not working with any. And uh, you know, I'm chatting to I'm chatting to a couple of others about me helping them do that and. The stuff that we talked about at the start of the show about how you can attract sponsors from outside of the gambling sector uh, by you know by doing things a bit differently and thinking more creatively. So there are people out there kind of looking to looking to change things, but it's difficult. And I know that because I've been sat in one of those positions. You know, if I was still if I was still sat at Talksport, I probably wouldn't be having this conversation. Well, I definitely wouldn't be having this conversation with you because I'd I'd have to do my job first and foremost. And my job is to go out and make and, and bring the money in. And if bookmaking money is there, then that's how you've, you know, then that's how you've got to do it. And again, you know, if you're a commercial director at a, at a League Two football club and you've maybe got one or two members of staff alongside you, the reality is, is if you were to turn down bookmaking money, they might lose their jobs. You know, they might well lose their jobs because they're so dependent on that money coming in. So it is going to require a lot of change. But I don't, I just don't think you get, you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to have a healthy relationship with. Um, with the bookmaking firms, as you said, but there are plus, there are some plus sides. So if you look at, um, you know, the, oh yeah, I need to balance the books on this, but Everton and Aston Villa both switched uh, their shirt sponsorship from bookmakers um, at the start of the season, and again, they've seen a large uh, intake, uh, sorry, a large uptake of the new shirt. So they've sold a lot more. I think, I think in Everton's case, it's something like 40 percent more than they'd sold the year before, which, you know, you could attribute to the fact that people don't want to be seen with um, with a, a bookmaker's logo emblazoned on, on the front of them. And so there are, you know, there are upsides to a world, you know, to a world without bookies, but it's going to take a hell of a lot of adjustment. And it's going to, you know, again, like you said, we don't know the outcome yet, but let's say you get a two-year grace period. Well, that'll be, that'll be here before you know it. You know, that's not a huge period of time, particularly when, you know, a lot of the, these deals will run for two, three, four years. So it's, uh, it, if a blanket bad does happen, there's going to have to be a lot of adjustment that takes place. But it is an opportunity to do things a lot better. And, you know, not just from a moral point of view, but from the point of view of, look, all sponsors want to sell their products. And you're going to have to be more imaginative. Clubs are going to have to be more imaginative in the way in the way that they do that and the way that they work with sponsors. So there is an opportunity to do things better. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Jed, to be honest. I think they absolutely need to look at different models and different ways of getting sponsorship. And I know it's difficult, especially, like you said, for the smaller clubs, because ultimately, if they're the only sponsorship they've got is potentially from a bookmaker's and that's going to keep their club afloat, then they're absolutely 100% going to do it. However, like you said, there the will be other sponsorship deals out there. It's just, I think, from my experience working on the podcast, the 
bookmaker sponsorship seems to be a lot more accessible to the, the, the sport, doesn't it? And just before we sign off for another week, it would be great to know what you think the future looks like in the sports marketing space. Well, I hope it's a lot, uh, you know, it's a lot less dependent on bookmakers than it is now. And I think that there is an opportunity, as we, as we were just saying there, there is an opportunity to create much more interesting things. And again, I don't, I'll kind of leave you with an example of something which has gathered a lot of a lot of coverage in kind of the advertising trade press. And that's a partnership between Burger King and Stevenage. I don't know if you've seen this one, but it's, you know, again, Stevenage, you know, essentially a low, you know, a lowly league two side working with a giant, you know, a giant, hugely famous brand. And what they did was, a, you know, a really, really brilliant, innovative campaign where they said that because Stevenage are the lowest ranked side on FIFA, the, the worst team that you can play as in FIFA, they embraced that and said, right, we're the, we're the worst side on here. So we want to work with a sponsor to create the Stevenage Challenge, which is where we encourage FIFA gamers to go and um, to go and play as Stevenage and make them and make them a better team. And they off the back of this brilliant idea, they become the most played team as um, in career mode in FIFA. So all that exposure that the sponsor is getting off the back of being the absolute worst in it. Now I know again, you know, you could point the finger and say it's a it's a fast food brand and there's young people doing it, but that's probably another debate for another time. The the principle of it is is that you can attract a big brand by doing things differently and actually embracing your weaknesses, thinking about where, um, you know, not just your immediate audience, you know, the however many thousand go and watch Stevenage every week or used to, but by looking at it and saying, right, where, what other bases can we, can we reach this audience? And obviously FIFA was a, was a big part of that. So, you know, it's, it's things like that. It's those, you know, not everything is going to be as imaginative as that, but it's just that if you'd have gone to Burger King and said, do you want to slap your logo on our shirt? We're, you know, we're a, a lower half League Two side. You'd be laughed out of town. You go to them and, and work out a, a really good imaginative idea that's going to get lots of press coverage, get loads of loads of people um, engaging with it. They're much more interested. So I would hope that it's that degree of imagination. Really, you know, what I think everyone wants is a situation where clubs are doing well because they're they're getting the, the money that's coming to them. The sponsors are the sponsors are pleased because they're able to you know they're able to get a, a good quality campaign and ultimately the fans are the fans are safe protected and enjoy the the sponsors that are there you know official sports drinks partner of Luton Town if you you can be the most avid Luton Town fan do you really care that they're your official sports drinks partner probably not you know whereas in the Burger King example there's some imagination there's a reason to there's a reason for you to kind of um, to care so i would hope that the sports industry is going to is going to embrace these kind of imaginative creative campaigns a lot more and what a fantastic way to end the show innovation and imagination this is what it's all about guys um, so thanks so much for coming on the show today jed and we hope the future is very bright for underdog sports marketing a massive thank you goes to rohan as well who joined us for part 1 of the pod today Bye-bye from me and Tracy. Please join us again next week for the next episode of All Bets Are Off. Have a great week. Ciao for now. You've been listening to the All Bets Are Off podcast. To find out more about the creators of the pod, then please visit our website, www.allbetsareoff.co.uk. And don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter at allbetsareoff underscore and share this podcast with others. Until next time, stay safe and remain gamble-free. Thank you for listening.